If you have a Bible, uh, open it with me to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts 19. <clears throat> Let's see how far we can get this morning. In Acts chapter 18, we looked at um, how God had instructed the Apostle Paul to keep on talking. He said, I want you to continue to share. And he said, I'm with you. Not only that, I'm going to protect you. Nobody's going to be able to hurt you, Paul. <laughs> and, and, and so Paul did. He ended up being in Corinth for a year and a half. Uh, as a matter of fact, right after, sometime after anyway, uh, the Jews they had risen up against him. Remember, we looked at that and uh, God had been true to his word. <laughs> the, the Roman proconsul Gallio uh, he refused to consider the Jews' charges and under threat of harm, essentially told them to scram. He said, get out of here or face the consequences. And, and so uh, God further protected Paul. Right after that, remember, the, the Gentiles were angry and they rose up against and they took the new ruler of the synagogue because the previous one had gotten saved uh, and they beat him up in front of the, the Bema seat where Gallio was doing his stuff. And, and Gallio just looked the other way. So message, message sent, message received. Don't mess with my people <laughs> was essentially what God was doing through all of that. We talked about God working in the natural, supernatural. Uh, we'll look at uh, the other side of that a little bit this morning, and then especially next week, or ne- well, not next week because it's Palm Sunday, but uh, in a couple of weeks when we get back to Acts, where we look at God working just in the supernatural and manifesting supernatural things, uh, which is no big deal for him. He's God. We look at it when he bends the laws of physics or uh, that kind of thing and, and look at the miraculous, the supernatural and uh, gets our attention, which is, that's his intent. So after this year and a half in Corinth, Paul, uh, he, he had, remember, he'd gotten together with Aquila and Priscilla, fellow tent makers, uh, and they had uh, gone down to Sancria where he got a haircut, uh, and then uh, had, they boarded a boat, <laughs> and you now he had taken a vow, probably the vow of a Nazarite, we, we looked at that, and then they got onto a boat and they headed over. He was going to head for Jerusalem. He had about 30 days before he had to, and I know it sounds weird, but Jewish stuff being what it was, he essentially had to take a box of hair to the temple and it was part of his fulfilling, completing his vow. Uh, so he was in a hurry, but they stopped in Ephesus. He left Aquila and Priscilla there. And uh, uh, then, and during that time, he, true to form, Paul goes to the synagogue there. And rather than the people immediately rejecting what he had to say, they said, well, you know, we want to hear more, Paul. And he said, well, I, I can't stay now, but God willing, I'll return. And that's, we're going to look at the God willing this morning, because in chapter 19, it's all about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So uh, he left Priscilla and Aquila, uh, there in Ephesus, he traveled to first to Caesarea Maritima on the coast of Israel or Palestine, uh, a beautiful area. Uh, then he went up to Jerusalem, uh, up being up in the mountains where Jerusalem is. And then he went down to Antioch in Syria. 
which completed his first or his second, I mean, missionary journey. So uh, in chapter uh, 18, verse 23, we saw that uh, a short time later, he left for Galatia and Phrygia, which was again back into Asia Minor, where he had gone the first couple of times, uh, because he wanted to strengthen the churches that he had previously planted. So he's a busy guy. Well, and, and essentially, if we stopped at 1823 and we went to nine, chapter 19, verse 1, it would be a continuous flow of Paul's ministry. But there's sort of a parenthetical thing in there about a guy by the name of Apollos, who was a man from Alexandria, Egypt, which had risen to prominence in the ancient world. It had really essentially taken the place of Athens. Athens had seen its zenith, its, its peak, about 500 years before when the Greek empire was going strong and, and it had been in decline. It had shrunk in size and shrunk in notoriety, but Alexandria had risen in prominence and notoriety, a huge library there, a place of education and learning and culture and all. And this guy, Apollos, comes from there. And we're told that he was an eloquent man. He was mighty in the scriptures. Remember that uh, I would love for that to be my epitaph. I mean, uh, <laughs> he was an eloquent guy and mighty in the scriptures. Uh, I mean, what a great way to be remembered and to be thought of. But he'd only been familiar with the baptism of John. And we're going to look at some a, a dozen guys today that are kind of in the same category. Uh, he was evidently familiar with Jesus, but he hadn't learned about his life and his work. And so... Aquila and Priscilla. And I love this. I mean, because here's this eloquent guy, mighty in the scriptures, highly educated. And these two tent makers, these two blue collar people say, you know what, Apollos, you need some more information. And can we teach you and fill in the gaps with the person and the work of Jesus? Uh, and uh, Apollos was evidently very open to that. He was teachable. We talked about that last week and about what it is to be teachable as a pupil, as a, as a disciple of Christ. Critically important, not just to become book smart, but to be in a place where we apply the word of God to our lives. So after that, Apollos began to sense God's call to go back to Achaia, which is the province where Corinth is located. And, and so the brethren there uh, in Ephesus, the, the, the small church that had been started there, they sent letters with him saying, you know, receive him. And they exhorted the, the church at Corinth to be able to take Apollos in. We're told that he, again, he does apply the things that he's been learning because he goes low and he begins to immediately come up alongside it and to, to get with the people there and to begin to help those uh, who had believed by grace. I love the way that that's stated here. So uh, the Apostle Paul, we wrapped up last week looking at how Paul would reflect on Apollos and, and he would remember him as he said, I planted and Apollos watered. And that each one having their place in the grand scheme of things in God's plan for the church at Corinth. So as we get into chapter 19 in verse 1, uh, we're going to look at some things here. 
it says, and it happened in verse one of chapter 19, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So now the upper regions, when you see a mention here of the upper regions, it's not talking about, uh, you know, that he went way north. No, if you look at, and we'll look at it in a couple of minutes, we're going to look at a, a, a number of maps. The whole area of southern Turkey, where Paul would have traveled from Antioch in Syria, going across to the the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, where it says that he's headed, uh, it's, it's, it's very mountainous. When we studied the beginning of his second missionary journey, we looked at the Cilician Gates, which, I mean, as tall as Mount Hood, <laughs> okay, 12,000 feet high. Big mountainous area, and on the other side of those mountains, when he talks about the upper regions, it'd be like if we were traveling from here in the coastal lowlands to eastern Oregon, say I want to go to Baker, I'm going to go across the upper regions to do that because I get into the high desert and it doesn't go back down, it just stays up there. That's pretty much how the geography is there. So that's upper regions. So uh, as we look at this, uh, we're going to see that Ephesus, when Paul goes to Ephesus, that it would become sort of a base of operations. It would become a hub for his evangelistic efforts that would spread out throughout the entire region of Asia. Now, remember, we're not talking about the continent of Asia that we know today. Asia was a province in the Roman Empire, and it occupied the whole, a large area, uh, the whole part of what we would call Western Turkey now. All right, so from the, the north shore of the Mediterranean Sea all the way up to the Baltic and then across all the way to the Adriatic Sea on the west and then up to, well, Galatia and, and those other regions there. We'll see that on the map in a minute. I'm just kind of, I'm reading it in my brain here, which you don't get. So <laughs> anyway, um, something I think is really interesting about this is that when Paul goes to Ephesus, remember when he started his second missionary journey, he wanted to go to Asia and the Holy Spirit said, no. He wanted to go to Bithynia, and the Holy, which was to the north and the Holy Spirit <laughs> said, no. And why did that happen? Because he was directed to go to Troas. Silas had met up with this doctor named Luke and God had plans for them to go and to evangelize Europe. And that's when they went across the Aegean Sea and they went up to Philippi first and then Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and then back. So that whole region had been evangelized as a result of the Lord blocking them from going north into Bithynia or south or to the west into Asia. Well, now that door is open. It's wide open. And, and Paul does. He's still got a burden to, to go and to, to go and visit the city of Ephesus, especially since he had told the guys there when he had been there for a brief time, God willing, I'll come back. So now here he is. So it's interesting that as we look at this, this door being open, the church as a result being planted in Ephesus, it would, it would experience explosive growth. And, and the province of Asia would be heavily influenced by the work that was going to be done here. Uh, Paul would later write a powerful letter back 10 years from now, from the time that, that we're seeing here in Acts 19. 
he would write a letter back while he was uh, chained to a Roman guard under house arrest in Rome. He would write what we know as the letter uh, or the book of Ephesians. It would be to the church at Ephesus. Something else about this, just giving you some biblical background on Ephesus, is the apostle John, uh, during the Roman persecution in AD 66 to 70, the, the, the Romans laid in a siege against Jerusalem. John had lived in Jerusalem at that, during that time. And he left, he fled Jerusalem and he relocated to Ephesus. He would spend the next 30 years or so in Ephesus uh, as a result of being exiled from Jerusalem. Now, we don't know we do know that when Jesus was on the cross, he said, woman, behold your son, and, and told John, behold your mother, that, that Jesus had given John charge over Mary. And she would have been quite elderly at this point. If she was alive, she probably went with him. There are, there's mixed uh, information about, extra biblical information about whether or not Mary was with him. There's a church in Ephesus, or the ruins of an old church in Ephesus, that's the uh, pays homage to Mary and all that. We don't know. But we do know that John relocated to Ephesus and that during the time that he was there, uh, an emperor named Domitian came to power. And in about 95, uh, John was exiled to the island of Patmos, which is about 50 miles to the southwest of Ephesus, is out in, out in the, the sea there. And, and during that time, he would write what we know as the apocalypse. Now, during his time in Ephesus, he wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that we see in our New Testaments. So there's a lot going on here in Ephesus. There's a lot of stuff that happened. This would be a major place of influence, not just for the people in that day, but for us today. Because we see that there was a lot of, a lot of activity going on with what God was doing through these people in this city. Now, after Domitian's death in 96, uh, John would return to Ephesus until his death in about the year 100 or so. Uh, now, during his time on Patmos, this is interesting. In Revelation 2, Jesus is instructing the apostle John to write letters to seven churches. In, in a minute, I'm going to show you some maps, and you'll see that they're, they're all in the same neighborhood. They're all part of the evangelistic effort that would take place through the church at Ephesus as people reached out and went across Asia. Now he tells the Ephesian church in chapter 2 of Revelation that while they're doing the right stuff, they were, they were doing, they were busy, but they were doing it with the wrong heart. And he says, look, You've left, left your first love. In Revelation 2, 4, and 5, we read, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. That means change your mind about what you're doing. And do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So a stern warning to John's home church. I mean, <laughs> he's there in exile on Patmos. He comes from this, the town of Ephesus. And the first church that Jesus addresses to him in, in the whole thing where he gets the apocalypse, he gets the revelation, is to his home church. And, and evidently, they didn't repent. And the Lord re did remove their lampstand. He removed their lights 
as a church. He removed his blessing from that city and that church. Uh, I mentioned last week that Ephesus was the second largest city in the empire, uh, 250 to 300,000 people, huge city. And uh, unlike Thessalonica, which was the capital of Macedonia, and Corinth, which was the capital of Achaia, uh, both of those cities remain to this day. But Ephesus no longer exists, uh, with the exception to some well-preserved ruins that are there. Uh, we'll look at a couple of pictures. They've got some fabulous ruins. It's kind of on my bucket list. I would love to go to Ephesus and check it out. Uh, in, in the year 262, the Goths, my wife and I were talking this morning. I said, she said, well, what happened to Ephesus? I said, well, the Goths destroyed it. She said, the Goths? I said, yeah, but it wasn't a, guy, a bunch of guys in black trench coats. And she said, yeah, with like black eye makeup and black lipstick. Yeah, no, 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 it wasn't those Goths. We're talking a Germanic tribe that came and <laughs> attacked the city. And they had been through a lot before that. The city was pretty much decimated by the time the Goths got a hold of it. But they finished it off and they, and they wrecked the city. They also totally destroyed what was known as the Temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We'll talk about that and look at some images and all of that when we get to it here uh, in the next couple of studies. But uh, it's interesting to me that Jesus warns, repent or you're finished. They were finished. So I've got some slides here. Slide number one I'm just going to go through these, some slides and some photos. As you guys know, I like to orient you to what where this is in real time. And, and as far as the real geography of this, these are not abstract places. They're places that did exist and many times, very often do still exist. We know Ephesus still exists through the ruins. But this first map, it shows an inset of the world uh, in the, the lower left inset there with the little kind of the little pinkish dot there. That's where the, all of this stuff took place. Very small area. And then, of course, the larger map, you can see Ephesus and you can see the other six churches uh, from the book of Revelation, from the letters that Paul or that uh, John would um, be dictating to these churches. Now, the second slide shows us the entirety of Paul's third journey. Uh, again, it, he retraces a lot of what he did on the second journey. And if you can, you can see there, uh, in the far right, in the, on the top, that red line starts in Antioch and Syria, goes across Galatia, and goes to Ephesus. Now, from there, he goes to Troas, and then off down into Macedonia, down into, uh, the lower part of Achaia and Corinth and all of that before he comes back. Now, the blow up of that, the area that's in the pink box in slide number three, it shows uh, the location, the proximity of these six churches, the seven churches of, of the book of Revelation to one another. They're just in a line there. And you can see where Ephesus would be a hub, where Ephesus would be like the main place. The other thing about that is you see Colossae there. It's in blue. The, the dot is blue because it's not one of the churches that Jesus had things to say about, but it was definitely one of the places that was evangelized and that was established for the New Testament in Jesus's or in Paul's day. So, and that's where we get the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. It was to the church at Colossae. Now also 
if you see that Patmos, you can see where Patmos is, another blue dot, uh, to the left and down a little bit from Ephesus. That's how far it was for John when he was exiled to that island when the Lord appeared to him and gave him the revelation. So uh, this fourth slide, just some photos quickly we'll run through. The, I mentioned there are extensive ruins in Ephesus. There's, no, there's a very small city, has a different Turkish name. It's like 30,000 people or something that occupies some of the area that Ephesus formerly did. But uh, Ephesus itself uh, doesn't exist. So... Uh, Lots of ruins there. And then the fifth slide here, there's, it's, this is, if you type in, if you Google Ephesus, you're going to see that there's sort of an iconic symbol of the ruins of Ephesus, and that's called the Library of Celsus. And, uh, beautiful architecture must have been in, in its day. It was built about the time that John passed away, about the time that John went to be with the Lord. Somewhere around the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, it was built, again, destroyed in 262 with the Goths. The facade was restored in 1970 through 78. It took them about eight years to restore this facade. Uh, and the sixth slide shows they were doing some type of a, a gathering there in the evening. And I just thought it, I just thought it was a pretty picture and you'd like to see it. So <laughs> anyway. Back to the text, continuing in verse 1, and uh, finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now that's honest. <laughs> the Holy what? <laughs> now, I'm going to pause here and I'm going to talk about this for a little bit because there's a fair amount of debate over this verse. The King James renders this verse two as since you believed. The new King James, as well as most modern translations, render this when you believed. And and I'll tell you what, people like to get hung up on things like that. And and I'm going to try to unhang you (laughs) from that. Uh, I will tell you that the grammar, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know how to use a lexicon, and the grammar supports, supports both, uh, both translations, both ways to render that. It could be either, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, <laughs> indicating if not, then you're not saved. Uh, or it could be, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed, the, indicating they were believers, but they had not yet received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And you could, so which is it? I don't know. Um, Take your pick. (laughs) I believe the answer lies somewhere in between. But as we, the the more important thing is, as we work our way through this passage, we're going to discover that essentially it's a moot point. It doesn't matter. Now, I'm not saying that salvation doesn't matter. I'm saying that whichever position you take essentially doesn't matter because we see what happens with these gentlemen uh, is, is really what does matter. I will say, now here's where I'm going to start giving you, hinting at my opinion <laughs> about it, uh, that the word disciples, and they're called disciples here, that's very clear, in the book of Acts, always refers to believers. <clears throat> 
plus the indwelling of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of salvation, whether or not somebody has words for that particular experience. We're not saved by our head knowledge of these things. We are saved by placing faith in a risen Christ. They didn't have any real knowledge about the nuts and bolts of it. That doesn't change the fact that, as we'll see as we work our way through the text, that I believe these guys had genuinely had a salvation experience. They had had a conversion experience and that they were going forward on that basis with what they did know. Uh, I, I, I love the, the thought, the saying that says, don't worry about what you don't know, worry about what you do. And, and I think that that's something that all of us could take to heart. So uh, I think what's more important, as sort of as a big however, <laughs> is to say there's no subsequent work of the Holy Spirit in one's life. I believe it's both naive if you want to take the full counsel of the word of God and it sets people up to miss a tremendous blessing. And we're going to look at the subsequent work of the Holy Spirit in these men's lives this morning. So the question then becomes, is it possible that these disciples had turned from their sins, embraced Jesus as Messiah without understanding all the details of the cross or the resurrection, the ascension, or the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What Holy Spirit? The answer, in my view, and and again, if you disagree, that's fine, uh, is, yeah, I believe it is possible. I mean, think about it. This is the start. This is the genesis. This is the beginning of the church. And, And Part of Paul's mission was to go about the empire, go about the areas where he traveled to inform people, to give them an informed faith. That they didn't have a fully informed faith didn't mean that they didn't have faith. I remember when I first got saved. Oh my goodness. I remember seeing... (laughs) uh, This is free. (laughs) No charge. I was yammering on about something (laughs) and... I was talking to our worship leader and his wife. This is at a church in Southern Oregon where I came to know the Lord. And they just looked at each other at one point kind of with big eyes and like, we're not going to even respond to that. I don't remember what it was, but it was because, you know, we can be very zealous when we first come to Christ. And sometimes that zeal is without knowledge. I don't know what these guys were up to when Paul ran into them, but he determined pretty quickly that they had part of the picture. Genuinely, I believe, genuinely disciples, but uh, they hadn't quite grasped all that there was. And and that's part of why we have this to to study this morning. So uh, it is possible. The point in that is that salvation, it's a personal relationship which involves the whole person. Trusting Christ is that which gives a person in a moment in time the ability to step from death to life, from darkness to light, from futility to hope. And that happens in a moment in time. The minute I give my heart, when I genuinely turn from that old life and I say, Jesus, I believe that you went to that cross for me personally, There is a transaction that is made and heaven rejoices, the Bible tells us. So I'm not disputing that for a minute. And uh, I think it's also true that salvation is both an event and an ongoing process. 
see both sides and both sides are taught and we don't have time of it. I, I got a whole list of scriptures I was studying and I went, I just don't have time to go into the whole aspect of the process to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, all of those scriptures that indicate the process. Very clearly an event, but also a process. And these men are in process. So it's a progressive experience as our understanding deepens and more scriptural truth is understood. And, and so, and we're all engaged in that process to one degree or another. Uh, again, look at Apollos. He was a very wise and learned man. All he knew was the baptism of John. Did that mean that he didn't have a relationship with Christ? Of course not. It meant that he was growing in his understanding, growing in his faith, growing in his relationship. As are you and I, uh, I pray anyway. So, uh, what these disciples didn't know was that the Holy Spirit was already given on the day of Pentecost. And I, I think back, and, and if you've been here for a while, I, I've shared this before, but uh, just for the purpose of making a point, I, I remember so clearly at five, maybe six years old, sitting in my backyard at a picnic table all by myself, uh, having a profound experience with God. And uh, the question comes to me, was the Holy Spirit with me in that moment, that day in my backyard? Yeah, I believe he was. Did I have vocabulary to express that? I was six, come on. <laughs> I, had, I didn't have words, but I knew that God had touched my heart. Uh, I can relate to what Luke's saying here in verse 2. I hadn't heard whether or not there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit, but I knew something had happened inside of me. There was a profound shift in me. Uh, and, and that was the Spirit's prompting. I'm absolutely convinced. Now, it would be more than 20 years later uh, that I would consciously turn from my old life and give my heart to Jesus. And, and as a result, I would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit in that moment. So there, and we're going to look at that as we go along here. Uh, because at that point, when I came to the Lord, when I formally gave my life to Christ, when I came and gave him and returned from the old life, repent and believe, those two things go together, uh, the spirit would come in and he would remain in me. And since that moment, there have been a number of times where the Holy Spirit has come upon me. So there is the with, and then there's the in. And as we'll look at here as we go through the text, there's the upon. Uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon a person is not necessarily related to salvation, to that event. It could be, and, 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 and again, we get twisted up and we get hung up on words. And I want to encourage you, please don't. Some people call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there are people who say, no, 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 the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's what happens when you when you get saved. Well, no, 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 it's the filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, no, no, no. And, and again, we can get so hung up on that that we ignore what's going on. And what's going on in my, what was going on in my life and what I've seen in my life over the years is there are times where I receive a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Call it what you want. A, a new baptism of the Spirit, whatever it is, the Holy Spirit comes upon people and that can happen more than once. That can happen for because he does that 
to empower us, to equip us as we go along for different aspects of working out the call in our lives, for ministry, for service, whatever it is. It happened to me most recently, uh, <laughs> last August. And those of you that know my story, I was lying in a hospital bed for, in, for 10 days, was in a stupor, a mental fog. As I came out of that fog, uh, uh, this is after having had a major heart attack and, and all of that. Uh, but as I came out of that fog, the Lord touched my heart so deeply. And, and he gave me a fresh vision for my own walk, my own relationship with Christ. He gave me a fresh vision for this church. And we're, we're praying and, and we're, we're seeing God move in some particularly powerful ways. And, and, and so was that... That was not my salvation experience, but it was definitely a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And that happens. Folks, Jesus is real clear. He says, you know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's what's being talked about here. That's the upon. I'm going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, again, over trying to get past some of the dogma that's associated with it, uh, that there are levels and stages to the Spirit's work. Uh, the three prepositions, as I've been talking about, that are used in the New Testament are with, in, and upon. Now, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you. That's the Greek word para. That's where when we talk about the helper, it's the paraclete. Okay, one, and what that means is one to come alongside. So that he dwells with you and he will be in you. That's the word, or it's the Greek word en or en, uh, where we get the word in. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Uh, the with, the, the Holy Spirit being with me. Yeah, he's with me as a believer, but he's not yet in those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And if, if you're here, or you're within the sound of my voice, checking the, the, this study out online or whatever, and you don't know Christ, you haven't given your life to him, your heart to him, and yet you know that he's knocking on the door of your heart, that's the width. He comes to us and he convicts people of their sin. He, he's drawing them to repentance. He's revealing that God-shaped hole in the human heart that we try to fill with all kinds of garbage. Because there's just this wanting, there's this void. And that's the Holy Spirit's work of drawing us, saying, please, just come, just give your life to me. Stop all the chatter and listen to me. Understand that I love you and that, I, that, that Jesus went to that cross for you and that he died for you so that you could have life. So that then, as a cleansed vessel, the Holy Spirit could come in because he can't come in to an unbelieving, unrepentant heart. That's a powerful, powerful thing. So that's the width. Now the in, 
as I mentioned, it's what it is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit comes in and fills that God-shaped hole. It's when he comes in and he gives us, there's a deep and an underlying abiding satisfaction that comes that I remember when I got saved back in 1983, I just went home and I went out by myself. I had a little shop on the ranch that I was living on and I just went out and I, part of the time I just wept because I was so blown away by, and, and I couldn't understand what had happened. I, I went to the pastor, I went to, they had an evening service at this little church and I went to him that night in, in the service and I went up to the guy after the pastor, Rick Boya, uh, at, at Trail Fellowship in Eagle Point, Oregon. <laughs> and, and I, they were meeting in a little Methodist church. And I, after the message, I went up and I said, Pastor, can I talk to you? And he said, yeah, sure. And I said, I got a real problem. He said, what's that? And I said, I either made the, the, the greatest decision of my life today or I'm in real trouble. I said, you know, I looked up to receive Christ. He goes, oh, I know. <laughs> he said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, I'm a Mormon. And he started laughing. He goes, you were a Mormon. And I gave my life to Christ today. And, and, but from that moment, folks, there was a shift undeniable, unmistakable. It doesn't mean I've got it all wired. I mean, I've just got as many flaws as anybody else, but I do know where I'm headed. And I do, do know who governs my life. That's the end. The Holy Spirit had come into me. And, and in some ways, I've never looked back. It's a new life. He indwells every believer. When a person repents of their sin, puts faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit does take up residence within them. He guides our lives. He leads us, as Jesus declares in the Gospel of John, he leads us into all truth. If this is resonating with you this morning, it's not because I'm all that and more. (laughs) It's because the Holy Spirit is taking what the Bible refers to as the foolishness of preaching. And I'll be a fool for Jesus. But he, he, he bears witness in our hearts. And that's where you get that, yes, this is good stuff. It's not because I'm good. It's not because anything I've got to say. It's because in communicating God's word, the Holy Spirit takes the the word of God and drives it into the hearts of the people of God. Fascinating. Fabulous concept, not just concept, but reality. So that's the end. It's, it's this permanent uh, indwelling that ensures that we as believers are never alone. I, and I've looked at that. I've thought about that before. You know, different major events in my life, had I not had the Holy Spirit living within me, how alone would I feel? How alone would I be? How futile would life be? How empty? How meaningless? It's kind of, kind of scary to think about. If, uh, the point is, is if you don't know Christ, let him in. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to live a fruitful life and, and that he manifests the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, and I love, in Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit being love. I look at that, and it's not like there's nine things there, and it's not like nine separate things. It's love manifesting as joy. Love manifesting as peace. Love manifesting as patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's all about the love of God being poured out in our hearts. 
in him producing fruit in us that we don't have the ability to produce on our own. Moving on, we look at the upon, and that's the, the, the epi, E-P-I. You heard of an epi pen. It's where <laughs> that there's this thing that happens with the Holy Spirit's ministry where he comes upon people. And, and, and he does that. The whole concept there, uh, the coming upon the, by the Holy Spirit is that of being empowered. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we looked at it when we started this book. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now the Greek word for power is the word dunamis. Now, and I've heard preachers say, and it's well-intentioned, but I disagree. They, they'll say, well, yeah, it's where we get the word dynamite from. And I think about that and I think, you know what? That just sounds messy to me. This is like, I don't, I don't want to just go and explode. I think a more accurate word is the word dynamic. Because what the Holy Spirit produces in us is a supernatural dynamic. As I serve the Lord, as I walk with the Lord, there's a dynamic in my life that did not exist prior. As I mentioned, some say filled, some say baptized, some say empowered. Uh, Don't get hung up on the terminology when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Guess what? You'll know. You'll know. And allow him to empower your life in ways that you couldn't imagine. I, 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 again, I've shared before, uh, walking across the campus of a Bible college back in 1984, I'd been a Christian for a year and a half or whatever it was, and saying, Lord, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I am just a sign painter that, you know, (laughs) didn't have anything better to do than to move my family hundreds of miles and go to this college. I'm not a college guy. But yet God, in his, in his wisdom, not mine, reminded me that I had asked him for that. I had asked him to open his word when I was 10 years old. And he did. Fascinating how the Holy Spirit was empowering me. And, and at that point, was, I had no idea that I'd be headed into ministry or that I would be a Bible teacher or any of that stuff. But God did, and he was working his will out in my life. It's just a matter of simply cooperating with the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do, folks. It's not about your ability. It's about your availability. Are you available for God to use? Are you available for him to take and to mold and to shape and to instill gifts in for his glory, for his kingdom, for his church? And that's a question that each of us ought to ask, because that's what the coming upon is about. He empowers us for service. Verse 3. Oh, we're just really moving through here, aren't we? And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? He's, what are you talking about? You've got the baptism of John. Huh, okay. So they, then Paul said, John indeed, they said to him, oh, all right, let me start over. He said to them, into then, what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, John the Baptist. So Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So they're followers of John the Baptist. Apparently they were faithful 
to the light that they had. They had a partial knowledge. But they needed further clarification about the life and the death and the resurrection, the ascension, all of the particulars, the gospel of Jesus, just as Apollos had gone through. These guys were experiencing the same thing. Again, the birth of the church. Now, it's important to understand that John's baptism was a baptism that involved repentance and expectation. It is different from the baptism that we have. Uh, and I've heard people kind of mix the two up. It's not, they're different. The baptism in Christ that we experience involves re- repentance and fulfillment. Okay, I'll explain. John's baptism looked forward to the expected Messiah, prepared people for his coming. That's what he said. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 11, John himself, John the Baptist is speaking. He says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Interesting. Being baptized into Christ is the fulfillment of that expectation. And it's symbolic. Uh, water baptism. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. How do we walk in the newness of life? Through the indwelling and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's the newness of life that Paul's talking about. Going on here in verse 5 in, in Acts 19, it says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, that's a good idea. Let's get baptized. We've already been baptized into John. Now they wanted to be rebaptized, and And I think it, for them, it was a great idea. Look, we need to finish this transaction here. Uh, now, it, notice it doesn't say, and so they received Christ and they were baptized. Now, I, again, I believe that the text indicates uh, and again, take your pick. But the text indicates that they were believers already. They just didn't have the whole story. So Luke describes bat- baptism here as in the name of Jesus. Now, Matthew, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Matthew, though, he talks about baptism is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what I pray when I'm baptizing someone. But folks, it's not about a formula. Uh, it's not the key. To view the formula as the key is placing the emphasis in the wrong place. Uh, it's all about the heart of the person being baptized. And that's what it is. It's an outward reflection of what's going on inside of a person's heart. Having received Christ, having received, being indwelt now by the Holy Spirit, identifying my life with Christ, the symbols or I'm baptized into his death. I go down into that water. That's death to the old life. Resurrected to newness of life coming out of the water. And symbolic of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is, is the one who comes to empower our lives and to energize us for what's ahead. So it's not about the correctness of a sacramental rite. And that's why I object to infant baptism. It, it requires a conscious choice on behalf of the person who's being baptized. And I, now, when I came out of the, the false religion that I had been involved in, I had my whole family baptized. I had my little kids baptized. 
And, and I encourage them later, you know, you might want to get rebaptized because, you know, that's got to be a conscious choice. But at that point, I felt like I was kind of washing the old stuff off with them. And, uh, and, and I talked to my pastor about it and he said, well, yeah, you know, the worst that's going to happen is they got dunked. <laughs> and, uh, the best you can hope for is that that inspires them to take care of that transaction later on, which both of them did. So, Again, it's, 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 it's about an acknowledgement that we're entering into a relationship with Jesus on the basis of repentance, coming to genuine faith in his finished work. Baptism is, is such a sweet thing. I mean, someone talking to me uh, a couple or a few weeks ago about baptizing their children. And uh, this summer we're going to plan a baptism. We'll probably use the big, uh, the, <laughs> the big tanks we've got out here in the parking lot, uh, which we've done before. So... Stay tuned on that. Verse 6, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. There's that coming upon. And they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. Now, the laying on of hands is often, but not always, mentioned in connection with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's, It's absolutely a biblical practice. Is it always the case? No. But as we saw in chapter 2 with the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples at Pentecost, there were supernatural manifestations which accompanied the baptism of the Spirit. So the question then becomes, could these same manifestations occur today? Yeah, I believe that they can. I would not be so foolish as to attempt to limit God by saying they can't. Uh, does the, does, do the spiritual gifts, do the sign gifts exist today? Yeah, they do. I believe that the Bible very clearly bears that out. In my own life, while I was in Bible college, telling God I did not want the gift of tongues because there's so much abuse. And him giving it to me anyway. That's what I get for trying to tell God what to do. But uh, just a beautiful prayer language. I use it a lot. I use it often. Does that mean that you know I'm out there shouting and jumping around and doing all kinds of crazy things? No, because the Bible says that we will use those gifts in decency and in order. And there is a place for spiritual gifts. There is a place for the signed gifts. Uh, better gifts, Paul said, I'd rather speak 10,000 words in a known language than <laughs> a few in a tongue that nobody understands. But yeah, Valid. So as a result of this coming upon of the Holy Spirit, this baptism, this fresh filling, whatever you want to characterize it as, these disciples would be empowered to proclaim the gospel boldly and they would proclaim it in Jesus' name. No longer would it be in John's name, but in Jesus' name. The Holy Spirit comes upon believers today. As I mentioned, a fresh filling, the baptism of the Spirit, Uh, however you want to characterize it, can happen with us. As we move forward as a church, my prayer is that God will continue to touch hearts, that he will raise people up, that he will equip and empower people for ministry. I see him doing that in some ways now and uh, excited about what God has for us in the future. But it's about being equipped. It's about being gifted. It's about understanding your call. I would encourage you to ask the question in your own prayers, in your own life, God, what is my part? What is my calling? How do you want to use me? 
It may be within the four walls of the church. It may be in other ways. It may be in your workplace. It may be with your kids or your grandkids. It may be with fill in the blank. But I'll guarantee you that God has something for each of us to do. And the expectation is not that we try to carry it off in our own power. That is a fool's errand when it comes to the things of the kingdom. You need the filling of the Holy Spirit. You need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called fruit. So to sum up, the ministry of the Holy Spirit involves being with believers to draw them to Christ Indwelling them uh, to enable them to live a new life and coming upon them to empower them for ministry. So the moment that a person believes in in the Lord Jesus, he or she is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. However, that doesn't deny that in a believer's life that there are subsequent movements of the Spirit. That's the point of this, folks. Be open. Ask God to give you a fresh filling of his spirit. Ask him to give you a fresh anointing to understand the depths of his word. Ask him, he says, you've got to, there's a place where you just come and you say, Father, I want more. And he is faithful. He is absolutely faithful. He empowers us for specific tasks and ministries. He gives greater boldness in our faith, and he pours out within us a passion for human souls, for evangelism, for winning people to Christ, because the alternative isn't good. Verse 7, last verse we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to have to step on it here. Now the men were uh, about 12 in all. So the reference here, now there's some weird interpretations of this verse as well. This is not an indication, (laughs) as some have suggested, that the church is the new Israel. There's a a bad theology out there called replacement theology. And this is one of the verses that they go to. It's like, you cannot go further out of context than to try to make that stand (laughs) at all. It's more than a stretch to try this, to make that, this one verse say that. I do believe that what Luke is getting at here is that Paul was not dealing with a number of individual cases. These are not separate, disconnected individual cases, but with a group of 12 men. We don't know the particulars of that. We've seen there were 12 men in all. It's also worth noting that from the small number, uh, and through Paul's teaching in the synagogue, he'll do that for a few months, and then he's going to move to what's known as the School of Tyrannus, the first Bible college. (laughs) Uh, They're in Ephesus, and he would teach there for a couple of years. He'd be in Ephesus for up to three years, but he would teach at the School of Tyrannus for a couple of years. But through all of that work, thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, many thousands of people would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. So as we wrap up, I want to look at a couple of things real quickly here. Uh, the first that I want to look at is it's all about God's timing. A closed door now doesn't mean it's a closed door forever. As we looked, the Apostle Paul, he wanted to go to Asia on his second missionary journey, and he'd been prevented by the Holy Spirit from doing so. Here, uh, at the closed door at that time was a way the, God's way of leading Paul to go and evangelize with his companions, to go into Europe and evangelize Europe. 
And the church in Europe was now established and it was growing. We've seen that. We've looked at that uh, in the last several weeks. So as we see here in chapter 19, the door to evangelize Asia is now wide open. What was once a closed door is now an open door. And folks in our lives, it can be stressful for us when the Lord closes a door that we can't open. Or he opens a door that we would really prefer would remain closed. Those are times in our lives where we are faced with, am I going to trust that God knows what's best? There's the times in our lives where we don't necessarily understand. I, The Lord gave Stacy and I a vision for coming to this church long before we knew we were coming to this church in 2013. 2015, I had lunch with a pastor over in Portland, shared that vision. 2017, I had kind of given up and moved to Colorado. <laughs> and my phone rang. It was a closed door. And and I, I really had just, I and I wasn't upset or, you know, weird about it. I was like, okay, well, that, Lord, that door's closed. But it wasn't closed forever. And then he opened the door, and here we are. My point is, is that, folks, it, Hebrews 10.36, for you have need of patience after having done the will of God to wait for what's been promised. It's one of my life verses because guess what? I'm a really impatient guy left to myself, but it's true. Don't get sideways when the Lord closes a door. Don't get sideways when you don't understand what's going on next because he is really good at taking care of what's next. Take heart. He's always working ahead of us. Uh, Part of walking by faith is trusting that he knows what's best even when we don't see what's around the next bend. So be encouraged. I was thinking about this. I was looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. In verse 1 it says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And then Solomon goes on into a whole a great number of examples there. I remember the song, it was of the birds, you know, to, <laughs> did from that song. But the point in that is Solomon had great understanding and he was saying, look, there's a time for things. There, there's a season. There's a time for every purpose. And it's God's timing, not yours. If you've surrendered your will, surrendered your life to Christ, trust him for the details. The second thing I want to look at is greater knowledge should translate to greater fruit. Let me explain. Does the ministry of the Holy Spirit go beyond having simply a theological understanding in your life? It's good. We want to have an accurate theological understanding. But I spoke about uh, last week and a little bit this morning about being teachable. As Apollos had been teachable with Aquila and Priscilla. Apollos, he gained greater knowledge for sure as they poured into him. So would these 12 men. They would understand that there was work to do. As Apollos applied that knowledge, we had a good example from the scripture that the next thing we see is he's bearing fruit in Corinth and helping the people there to be able to, to grow in their relationship with Christ. So greater knowledge should equate to greater fruit. As I gain understanding, it's like, Lord, don't let me just take this in. Yeah, I want to learn. I want to know. I want to continue to grow in my understanding, for sure. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. 
What I am saying is that God's design is that, is that as he pours into us, that at some point we pour out. And as we pour out into the lives of others, as we pour out in effective service, as we pour out in allowing the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to empower us, that we're fulfilling God's design for our lives. If I'm stopped up, then there's a problem. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm tempted to rabbit trail and talk about living water from the Old Testament, but I'm going to avoid it because we're out of time. Anyway, it's about applying the knowledge that we have. It's about saying, Lord, let me put that to practical use. Let me evangelize more. Let me serve more effectively. Let me understand other people's hearts when they're sharing, whatever that is. And that's going to look a little bit different for all of us. But I believe that the principle stands that greater knowledge should translate to greater fruit. The last thing uh, that I want to talk about is the coming upon of the Spirit is available to all of us. And rather than go into a lengthy thing, I, I want to ask, uh, Harvey, could you and Rick and Dennis, could you come up, please? Come on up here, Dennis, I'm going to embarrass you. Uh, a few months ago, Harvey and Rick have been elders in our church for, for some time. And uh, I asked Dennis, I, you know, I've been watching Dennis's life and, and spent time with him and uh, believe that part of the work that God's wanted to do in his life was to have him assume an aspect of leadership in the body here. And so I asked Dennis if he would consider becoming an elder in our church, uh, somebody who is responsible for spiritual oversight with people, and uh, he prayed about it and said yes. And we never, as a board, never made that formal until now. <laughs> so, Dennis, come on over here. I got my little handy dandy thing of oil. I want to anoint you with oil, and uh oh, I'll get that later. Harvey, that's for you. I'm gonna, we're gonna pray for him. Father, what a privilege it is to be in, in your work and to see you move in various and wonderful ways and we just pray for our brother as he's anointed with this oil that it would be represent the holy spirit moving in his life for this congregation and in your service and we pray from this moment on father he would have wisdom given to him not worldly wisdom but father that which comes from you as we've read about heard about this morning bless dennis father we pray in the new position that he's been given by you not by us but by you Touch him and bless him. And may each one here in the congregation receive that blessing because he said yes to the call of God. Bless him, we pray, as we look to you, we present him to you, and hold him up to you, asking your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Thanks, Har. Let's pray. Father... Uh, Thank you, Lord, that you do raise up faithful men uh, to carry on the work of the ministry. And uh, just pray, Father, that your hand would remain upon all three of these men, upon myself as well, that as we go forward as a church, that you would use us, that you would give us servants' hearts, that we would have the ability to come alongside and uh, that we would have your gifts, Lord, as we've looked at this morning. 
just pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would anoint and equip and empower. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And pray, Father, that in each of our lives, you know, Lord, that the the way that you move is, is that there's something for each of us. And so I pray that we could take that whatever that is, and and take it and use it in our lives and for your kingdom. We give ourselves afresh to you, Lord, in Jesus' name.